HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, I'm Jeff Sturchio, a senior associate at the Global Health Policy Center of CSIS. I'm pleased to join Kate McManus for a conversation today about what still needs to be done to achieve the ambitious goal of ending the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the United States. We'll explore how inequalities are the drivers of HIV transmission and how they still affect vulnerable populations disproportionately. Dr. McManus is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Virginia in the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health. She trained at Dartmouth College, where she majored in chemistry, and at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, where she obtained her MD. She completed her internal medicine residency and infectious diseases fellowship at UVA and also obtained a master's of science in clinical research during her residency. Kate joined the UVA faculty as a physician scientist in summer 2017 with a research award from the Translational Health Research Institute of Virginia. In August 2018, she was awarded a Mentored Career Development Award from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to study the effects of the Affordable Care Act on low-income people living with HIV and to quantify how health policy changes affect disparities in HIV care. So we'll be coming back to those questions in our podcast. Dr. McManus is co-chair of the HIV Medical Association's National Ryan White HIV Medical Providers Coalition Steering Committee, which gives her an important voice as a clinician and a researcher on national discussions about HIV and health policy. As a clinician, she sees patients in the UVA Ryan White HIV Clinic, and she attends on the infectious diseases inpatient consult team and the general medicine inpatient team. In addition to studying HIV care and health policy, Kate's work has recently expanded into studying access to biomedical HIV prevention. She also collaborates on projects related to access to care for people with hepatitis C and people with substance use disorders. Her goal is to build a vibrant and diverse team of researchers who quantify and characterize the impact of health policies on the U.S.'s plan to end the HIV epidemic. So you can see that Kate's the right person for this conversation today. And it's really a pleasure to welcome her to the podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here with you today. Great. Well, 40 years into the HIV-AIDS pandemic, progress toward the goal of eliminating HIV-AIDS is mixed. On World AIDS Day, December 1st, UNAIDS reported that there were 37.7 million people living with HIV-AIDS, of whom an estimated 27.5 million were receiving antiretroviral treatment. That's an impressive increase from the 7.8 million in 2010 who were receiving treatment. 
And there was progress in that new infections had declined by 31% between 2010 and 2020, and AIDS-related deaths declined by 47% during the same period. But there are still over 1.5 million infections per year globally, that's something like 4,000 a day around the world, and 680,000 deaths from AIDS. Prevention rates are not falling fast enough to stop the pandemic, and infections are actually rising in some countries and regions. In the United States, the U.S. government adopted an ambitious plan in 2019 to end the HIV epidemic with goals of reducing new infections by 75% by 2025 and by 90% in 2030. But new data from the CDC show, for example, that the rate of new infections among black and Hispanic and Latino gay and bisexual men did not decline over the past decade, despite all the efforts to address that question. The global targets adopted in 2016 were not reached by 2020, despite ambitious efforts to address the challenges of HIV and AIDS, and nor are the U.S. goals for EHE on track. Of course, the disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic explain part of the shortfall in the delivery of HIV prevention and treatment services. But what else explains why the HIV response seems to have stalled? Here, I think we can turn to questions around uh, stigma and discrimination and structural racism, discrimination against adolescent girls and young women, as well as other biases and barriers to access for vulnerable and key populations. You know, social determinants of health like poverty, housing, and education are all persistent sources of inequalities that have an impact on efforts to fight HIV-AIDS. The renewed HIV strategy for the U.S., which President Biden launched on December 1st, World AIDS Day, also notes that, quote, structural inequities have resulted in racial and ethnic health disparities that are severe, far-reaching, and unacceptable. The solutions to these problems will require renewed efforts beyond technical interventions, such as better prevention tools, diagnostics, and medicines. It will require efforts that place affected communities at the center of the public health response. So with that sort of introduction in a big nutshell, Kate, let's turn to some background to set the stage for the conversation. You know, as I mentioned, the U.S. government adopted an ambitious plan called EHE, or End the HIV-AIDS Epidemic, with the goal of reducing new HIV infections by 90% in 2030. Do you think we'll be able to meet those targets? And if not, what are the key sources of risk and vulnerability that make it challenging to achieve those goals? You know, you might start by just talking about what you see among the patients who come to you in the Ryan White HIV clinic at UVA. How do these issues present among the patient population you treat? Those are some great questions. I think, you know, are we going to meet those EHE goals? I, I hope so. I'm not sure. EHE poured a lot of money into the HIV epidemic, but it did so in certain jurisdictions. And so not all areas of the country are benefiting from that money. I think that when the plan was announced in 2019, they based the jurisdictions on data from 2016 and 2017. And in 2019, that made sense. We're now in 2021 and things are changing so quickly. We need to make sure that we're not behind the eight ball, that we're adjusting and adapting to where the epidemic is going. For example, we have an HIV outbreak in West Virginia related to injection drug use. And West Virginia is not on an EHE jurisdiction list. And so no additional EHE money can be allocated to that area. So I think the EHE plan was ambitious and wonderful, really welcomed and exciting, but we need to adapt it as the HIV epidemic changes and, and we need to move with the epidemic. In terms of what I see in the UVA Ryan White Clinic, 
I'm really fortunate to be able to practice as a physician in this type of comprehensive medical home because we can truly address the whole person. I really wish more medical clinics were able to deliver this level of care. Often when people come to see me in HIV clinic for a medical visit, I'm actually the least important person that they see. Because of all the great advancements in science and treatment, you know, we can figure out what medication they should be on. But then really it's my colleagues that I can connect them with that really are going to make a difference. The thing that takes the most time during the visits are the logistics of getting them care and treatment and the social determinants of health. So I really rely pretty heavily on my colleagues, nurse practitioners, case managers, community health workers, peer coaches, psychologists psychiatrists, and substance use counselors to help me address people's concerns. We're really lucky. We're a very well-resourced clinic, and we're able to have that team of people to take care of patients. Many of the most pressing issues that the patients come to the clinic with are housing, unemployment, food insecurity, issues related to incarceration, racism, stigma, discrimination, mental health, substance use. And many of these things, specifically unemployment, food security, mental health, and substance use have been exacerbated by the economic issues related to COVID-19. So really, the medical issues are a very small part of why people come to clinic. You were very fortunate that we're able to connect them to people who can help to address some of these other issues. Well, let's stay with that and just explore this a little bit more. You spoke about, you use the phrase a medical home and you know, that's part of, as I understand it, you can tell us more about this, the way in which the Affordable Care Act has tried to structure the delivery of care in accountable health organizations or accountable care organizations. And then at the level of the clinic, that's to provide a medical home for the population that that clinic serves so that, as you said, there's a whole team of disciplines. It's not what most of us either experience or think about medical care, that if you get ill, you go see a doctor, the doctor prescribes something, you take your pills and you get better. But as you just outlined, the folks who come to your Ryan White Clinic live complicated lives that have an impact on what their health outcomes are likely to be. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have a place to stay, you know, making sure you know where your medication is and that you take it every day is just not going to be your top priority. If you don't have a place to stay, you don't have food, you can't pay your utilities, you have, might have children you have to take care of. And, you know, it's really just we have to help address these other issues so that people can thrive and live good, healthy lives. And once everything else is in order, then taking the medication every single day becomes more feasible. Tell us a little bit more about how that team works together. You know, you could think about it as the experience of somebody who's typical of the patients you serve and how, you know, you and your colleagues are able to really address this whole range of social determinants of health in addition to just providing a diagnosis and treatment for their HIV infection. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have that team of people and we try to make it so that you come with whatever issue you have and we do whatever we can to help address it. If we can't address it that visit, we follow up on the issues. But really having everybody in that clinic space is really critical to being able to, you know, just pop down the hallway and grab someone. So if it turns out that someone, you know, newly discloses that they're having substance use issues, I can pop down the hallway and talk to our substance use counselor, see if they have a minute to come meet the patient in person. That makes it a lot less daunting if I'm going to refer them to see that person either later that same day or a telemedicine visit or come back to see that person. Having a warm handoff of care between team members is really important and really knowing each person's expertise and everyone's strengths. So we have great community health workers. And so 
often we'll invite them to come in and do the whole medical visit with us, especially if they have a good relationship with the patient. It can really be priceless to have kind of you show the patient there's a team of people here who care about you, who care about your health. Tell us what's going on and we will troubleshoot it. And we have community health workers who meet up with patients to go for walks, go to the library, check out books together. We also have some job training that's going on related to the clinic. So we're really just trying to meet people where they are and help address any barrier that they might have. You know, it's uh, interesting you mentioned the role of community health workers because I've done a lot of work in the last 20 some years on global health issues and looked at primary care in lower and middle income countries around the world. And there's such an emphasis on the importance of community health workers and primary care settings. And it seems that we can learn more from that in the U.S. as well, because one of the things we've seen, for instance, in the impact of COVID-19 recently around vaccine hesitancy is that often if you find people who are trusted intermediaries, who people in the community actually do trust, do believe, then you can address questions like vaccine hesitancy. I'm sure that the community health workers you work with play a similar role in working with the HIV positive population who you're treating. Yes, definitely. And actually, many people in our clinic also do work in South Africa. And so we saw the power of community health workers there and actually wrote a grant to add community health workers to our clinic after seeing the power of what the community health workers were doing in South Africa in the area where we worked in Limpopo. And so that was really exciting, as you said, you know, to see that in action and say, why aren't we doing that in the U.S. in our clinic and to start that program and grow it? And we at different times, we have now, I think, at least three community health workers and they're just priceless. You know, and also the information they can bring back to us when they go to patients' houses. So if one patient was having trouble making it to clinic and we just didn't understand. And when the community health worker went out to their house, they said, if you saw their driveway, you would understand that. When it rains or when it snows, that driveway's washed out or that driveway's blocked and there's no way they're going to come to clinic. So just these extra tidbits that you might not get from the patient themselves that can help you to understand the other barriers that might be affecting people's access to care and attendance in clinic. Yeah, it's so important because if we look at work that's been done recently on social determinants of health, the finding is in general that something like 80% of the factors that have an impact on the outcome of somebody's health condition when they're in the system have nothing to do with the clinic. That's all the factors you've been talking about, where they live, where they work, what they have to eat. It comes back to the, the complexity of the lives that all of us lead, and we have to keep that in mind when we're trying to think about health outcomes, and in this case, whether we can actually meet these HIV prevention and treatment goals. You know, one other aspect of this, and we've been talking a little bit about how the medical home concept works in, in the clinic in, in which you're working, but, you know, you could argue if we look at this more broadly that the U.S. healthcare system itself is a major barrier to access for key populations and others seeking care and treatment because there's a patchwork system of uneven coverage and a bewildering set of rules and regulations, particularly for people in the Medicaid system or Medicare for that matter on the other end of the spectrum. And you've studied some of the structural constraints within the U.S. healthcare system, how the Affordable Care Act and the Ryan White Program and Medicaid create this complex and bewildering framework of coverage that may hinder people who are just trying to live with HIV and get the care and treatment they need. So can you tell us, you know, how have you gone about studying that? What are some of the findings you've had? What are the solutions that suggest themselves to you and your colleagues? 
Yeah. So in terms of this patchwork system of coverage and access, it was really working in the HIV clinic during residency and seeing these logistical barriers that inspired my current line of research. So with all the amazing advancements in science and HIV treatment, you know, I was sitting there in the clinic just wondering why was it so hard for me to get someone the medication that they needed either for treatment or for prevention. I just could not understand what was going on. And at the population level, I didn't understand you know, why aren't new HIV infections decreasing at a faster rate. I felt very frustrated and blocked by these structural and policy barriers. And what I was experiencing really is the difference or the gap between clinical trials and the real world. And so all of our research kind of centers on what is going on in the real world. And so I can give you a few examples of what we've studied. So we studied state AIDS drug assistance programs, which are the programs that provide medications to people with HIV with low incomes and who are uninsured or underinsured. And every state has one of these programs, but really they all make their own individual decisions. And so they're kind of like 50 different programs. And so we've studied one state and then three different states that actually incorporated ACA insurance plans. So they gave people the option, you can either continue to get your HIV medications for free from this ADAP or AIDS Drug Assistance Program, or you can elect to get an insurance plan that we'll purchase for you. And so we studied that and found that people who got the ACA insurance plans actually had higher rates of viral suppression, and it was significant. And we controlled for all different other sorts of variables and still found that these insurance plans were associated with better viral suppression. We also found that it actually cost the state less money to do this. So it was costing the state $10,000 per patient per year to buy the medications, and it cost the state about $6,000 per patient per year to buy the ACA insurance plan. So it was cost savings to the state. But knowing that numbers and viral suppression are not the full picture, we also wanted to talk with people with HIV in our clinic about this transition. And everyone almost universally said they liked this private insurance plan. And really, it was the improved access to non-HIV care, as well as either real or perceived improvement in medication access. But there were concerns about privacy, and there were very strong feelings both positive and negative about having to use a mail-order pharmacy. So that's kind of one of the first things we looked at. And then our state, Virginia, recently expanded Medicaid, and we weren't able to study this at the state level, but we studied it within our clinic. And we found that the viral suppression rate of people who transitioned to Medicaid was higher than the historical viral suppression rates. But actually, for the people who transitioned, their viral rate decreased, which was a little concerning to see. However, again, it's one clinic. But again, we wanted to know what's the full picture beyond viral suppression. So we went and talked to the patients who transitioned to Medicaid. And most of the patients were pretty satisfied with Medicaid and with its coverage. They did tell us that even with a lot of support from the clinic, this transition in insurance was hard. And I think that's something really important, that logistics and coverage and access and transitions and coverage and access are hard. It takes a toll on patients and on clinic staff. And specifically in terms of what may have caused the decrease in viral suppression rate, we heard that people had trouble getting their medications filled, either due to a gap between their previous coverage and Medicaid or an overlap between previous coverage and Medicaid and both plans saying, pointing to the other one. So those are some issues. We, we do hope to be able to do this in a larger population. We've also looked at HIV prevention and barriers to HIV prevention. We wanted to look at when there was only one formulation of PrEP or HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, we wanted to look at prior authorizations and try to understand what was going on with them. We looked at all of the ACA insurance plans, there's about 17,000 plans across the United States. 
And we actually found that in the South, these ACA insurance plans were 16 times as likely to require prior authorization Mm -hmm. for the one formulation of PrEP. This is very concerning because often prior authorization is used to push someone towards something less expensive. But at the time that we studied this, there was nothing less expensive. There was no other formulation. So this just created an extra barrier for patients. Often with prior authorizations, the patients don't know that there's going to be one until they show up at the pharmacy. And so we actually have no way of knowing how many times the prescriptions were actually abandoned and not even picked up. Also, additionally, it's concerning that this was in the South. Some colleagues said, well, maybe it's little regional plans that are doing this. Why don't you check if it's little regional plans? We checked. There was no kind of rhyme or reason to what could have been sticking out about the plans that did this. But when we looked at regional versus national, we did see that national plans were doing this. And so that's concerning because a a company that has a plan in the Northeast and a plan in the South was choosing to do something different in the South. Mm -hmm. More African-American people live in the South, and so they're more likely to face this barrier. So this is something that we point to as this is an example of structural racism, something that's going to disproportionately affect African-American people in the United States. Well, and also it's concerning because it's mainly in the southeastern part of the U.S. that incidence rates for HIV are increasing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, having that kind of bias in insurance coverage for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis just makes it more likely that people will not be able to prevent acquisition of HIV infection. Exactly. Yeah. The South represents about 38% of the U.S. population, but more than 50% of new diagnoses each year. So that is very concerning. We also have gone on to look at PrEP and look at barriers in EHE jurisdictions and have, again, found prior authorizations have a concerning higher rate in EHE jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So the areas that we've earmarked as having higher rates of HIV are having higher rates of prior authorization for PrEP. So not what we want to see. We want to make PrEP easier to get in all areas of the U.S. and specifically in the South and in EHE jurisdictions. So you've just shared with us a a ton of data about the work you've been doing. And it's fascinating that you can actually dig in and quantify these challenges and see exactly where people are not getting access to PrEP in the way that they should. And this is one of the things that that is maddening about the U.S. healthcare system. You know, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. You'd think that with all the work that's been done through the ACA over the last 12 years and other efforts to improve insurance coverage for people, that there wouldn't be these disparities in, in how tools like PrEP and, and antiretroviral treatment are made available to people. How do we fix this? I mean, it's, it has to be maddening for the people who are in the system. It's got to be maddening for people like you who are trying to help patients get the care and treatment that they need. And it has to be maddening for bureaucrats, too, who are trying to administer a system that just makes no sense. You know, you would think that everybody could sit around a table and figure out why do we have these gaps in coverage? Why do we have these inconsistent policies? Because I can't imagine that people actually sit down and say, let's make sure that we restrict access to PrEP through prior authorization because we don't want people to get the care they need. There's always some other rationale. But what do you think the answer is? First, you bring up the ACA, and and I should say that that has done a great job. We are in a better place with the ACA than we were before it, but there is still a lot of work to be done. Here in the U.S., we like to think that we're the best, but we can't ignore that we pay more and have worse health outcomes than many of our peers. And specifically for HIV, compared to our high-income peers, we have the lowest rate of viral suppression. 
And there are many differences between us and these peers, but we can't ignore that they all have some version of universal health care. While we have this patchwork quilt that makes it hard for patients, hard for clinicians, the Ryan White clinics can provide amazing care for HIV, but we can't provide care that is not related to HIV. And we can't use the Ryan White clinics for HIV prevention. And so really with universal health care, everyone would have better access to HIV prevention and people with HIV would have better access to non-HIV care. And that's really the direction that we need to be going. The new national HIV AIDS strategy does touch on structural barriers. And so that is an important new step. So hopefully we can be thinking about, we've put money into the system with EHE. We now have this plan with the national HIV AIDS strategy saying structural things are important. How can we make that actionable and how can we actually actualize those things? So that way, this amazing science, this great advancements can actually reach the people because that's really, we have these medications, we have PrEP, we have great HIV treatment, but if we don't get it into people's hands, then it doesn't really mean anything. It's so useful that you're involved in exploring these questions of HIV policy because you have the experience at the same time of being a treating physician, and it helps bring alive the issues that people in the system face when they're confronted by these policies. So I think it's so important to have that perspective on on these issues. It is really helpful to be able to, if I see something in clinic, some new logistical barrier, I can call up other collaborators and colleagues who might work at a nonprofit or have information about insurance regulation. And we discuss, I saw this in clinic. What does this mean? Or how can we get around this? Or have you been hearing about this? So it is really helpful to have these discussions and kind of have people with multiple different types of expertise thinking about these problems so we can try to figure out what these solutions might be. I think that's really important. You know, in the the last part of our conversation, I want to just switch to some of the issues you've touched upon, but focus more on a couple of key questions that comes back to this issue of the role of communities and of people living with HIV and trying to make sense of these policies and the way in which care resources are deployed. When President Biden launched the new U.S. HIV AIDS strategy on December 1st, World AIDS Day, one of the things that he alluded to was part of the vision of that new strategy. And the vision, let me just quote it, is the United States will be a place where new HIV infections are prevented, every person knows their status, and every person with HIV has high-quality care and treatment and lives free from stigma and discrimination. So that's a noble ambition. But the question I want to ask is, do you think that vulnerable populations living with HIV feel free of stigma and discrimination in the U.S.? In my conversations with patients, I would say that no, they don't feel free of stigma and discrimination. We're in Virginia, we're in the South, we're not in the deep South, but our patients still voice a lot of concerns about stigma and discrimination. We have patients who need to pick up, at one point they needed to pick up their medications at the local health department. Well, they did not want to go into their local health department for concerns that they might see someone they know or HIV status might be disclosed. And so helping to make sure people can actually access their medications at a place that they feel safe. Or we have people who might drive multiple hours to come see us in their clinic to be seen outside of their community. We've had examples where when patients were using the mail order pharmacies mandated by the private insurance companies, we had one patient whose mail was opened by a neighbor. The neighbor Googled the medication and then spread through the whole neighborhood that the person had HIV and the person was ostracized. So we're still seeing stigma and discrimination brought to us and told to us by our patients. And we do everything that we can to help educate around our area and make sure people are updated and know about HIV, know that HIV has changed a lot since it was first discovered 40 years ago, and make sure that U equals U, the undetectable equals untransmittable. 
that people are educated on that topic, that when someone living with HIV takes their medication every single day, they're going to live just as long as anyone else, and also that they will not pass HIV on through sex to a partner. So I think that's really important. So we're trying to do our part to help educate our communities, our area, but I know for sure that unfortunately our patients still feel a fair amount of stigma and discrimination, and I think it's going to take a lot to change that across the U.S. and in all pockets of the U.S., but I think it is really important to help improve people's health and their well-being. You know, a related question then has to do with what role do people living with HIV have in helping to create the policies and manage the institutions that provide care and treatment to them? Because the reason I think that's so important is another aspect of the U.S. HIV AIDS strategy is to look at the priority populations identified as focus areas for the strategy in the next several years. It's gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, in particularly black, Latino, and American Indian, Alaska Native men, black women, transgender women, youth age 13 to 24, and people who inject drugs. And that list is pretty consistent with the global trend of new infections among key populations. And we know that globally, what's driving the epidemic are new infections in these populations who often have a greater vulnerability and often are marginalized in certain societies and suffer from the stigma and discrimination that you were just talking about. So how is the U.S. going to achieve its EHE goals without doing a better job of addressing the needs of these groups? How can engaging with those communities help us to do a better job of addressing the EHE goals? Yeah, I think that that's really important. And I know that all the EHE plans had to have a lot of engagement with community. So I think that's really important. At the clinic level, you know, we have community advisory boards that give input to our clinics and we take it very seriously. The clinic is for our patients. And so any feedback that we get from the community advisory board is really important and we, we make sure we make changes. I think the other thing that clinics can do is, you know, peer coaches are really important addition to clinics because, you know, I care for people living with HIV, but I don't have HIV. So I can't always answer every single question they have. And so I can pull in a peer coach to help them walk through something challenging challenging that I might not have experience walking through. In terms of the U.S., I think in general, I think we need to be listening more to people living with HIV, paying attention to what they want. And, you know, one of the additions to the National HIV AIDS strategy was adding quality of life as something that's going to be measured, making sure that we're not just looking at the numbers, the viral suppression numbers, but we're also making sure that people feel well and are living good lives. And me as a researcher, you know, we always do the quantitative work where we can crunch the numbers and look at the associations or the causality, but we always try to pair it with talking to patients because we can find the numbers, we can find a difference in viral suppression. But unless I go talk to the people, the patients, I won't know why there was a difference. And so we found that to be really crucial to our work. It's sometimes more challenging than the quantitative work, but the richness of what patients share with us and then what we're able to do with it is really important. You know, you just reminded me of something. I, I'll just ask you about this. In the early days of the HIV epidemic, um, as the scientific community was starting to do more trials on different potential antiretrovirals, there was a movement to do community-based clinical trials, which came from the HIV community who in the early days, as you know, I'm sure you know from books like Randy Schiltz and The Band Played On, and there's a new history of ACT UP, and there was another history of the early days of the response to the HIV epidemic, Have Survival Plague. It was clear in, in the first couple of decades before we had really effective combination antiretroviral therapy that people were desperate to know what would actually work to help address HIV infection. And these community-based trials were really an important element of developing that knowledge in, in the first 15 or 20 years of the pandemic. 
Do you see an analogy where sort of a community-based inquiry like the kind of research you've been doing might actually lead to interesting new results? I think it probably would. I think who better to listen to people with HIV are the experts. We need them to tell us what they need. I think one of the things that's challenging is we need to reach people who aren't diagnosed yet. And so how, how are we going to get that population? And maybe talking to people living with HIV, asking, getting their ideas. How do we reach people who are undiagnosed? How do we reach people who aren't coming to clinic? That's really a huge challenge. And we know it's going to take probably more resources than it's taken to get the current people in clinic virally suppressed and living good, happy lives. Lives. But yeah, I think people living with HIV are the experts and, and we probably need to be doing more to engage them at every level to get their input to really make the next strides forward. So let me just ask one last question, Kate. You know, you told us about some of the work you've already been doing, you know, with your colleagues to really understand, you know, how uh, Medicaid and the ACA and prior authorization, all those factors have an impact on viral suppression and health outcomes for HIV populations. What are the next questions you plan to work on? What are the things that are really keeping you awake at night that you want to do research on? That's a great question. So we've studied the AIDS Drug Assistance Program's incorporation of ACA plans in up to three states, which was about 5% of the ADAP population across the U.S. We'd really like to study that across more states and states that have different sorts of incorporation of the ACA to understand what works best. And I think that would be really exciting because what we really need is more evidence base for what policy changes will help us to end the HIV epidemic. And then once we have the evidence, we can get more people on board to make these changes. And I think these questions around inequities, so who is not benefiting as much from AIDS drug assistance programs? We know that African-Americans who get medications through the AIDS drug assistance program don't achieve viral suppression rates at the same rate as white Americans. And so the question is, what's going on there? And, and this is a program that really we want to make sure that it's reaching everybody equally. What can these state AIDS drug assistance programs do to improve the viral suppression rate for black people living with HIV who rely on them? And then in terms of Medicaid, you know, I think we really need to be looking at it in different states to understand, you know, what does best practices look like for a Medicaid program? Again, Medicaid is something that varies state to state, kind of like the AIDS drug assistance programs where you can have fee-for-service Medicaid and then you can have additional commercial Medicaid plans. For example, in Virginia, we have fee-for-service, six other Medicaid plans. How do we know what really is serving people the best and how can we get people good access to care and treatment? Those are some of the things I think we're really interested in and continuing to look at access to PrEP because we have this wonderful pill that can prevent HIV. But again, if we can't get it into people's hands, then what does it really mean? Yeah, well, those are all important and interesting open questions. We'll have to come back and talk to you in a year or so and see. It might take more see. than a year, but yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're really excited to be having this conversation and discussing these policy issues because they unfortunately don't always get as much attention as they need or deserve. It's going to be important to really translate those policy ideas and prescriptions into service delivery that will leave no one behind. Well, that's a good point on which to end. And I, I just wanted to thank you, Kate, for this wide-ranging and provocative conversation. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.